You can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal Or measure them all by box office appeal But for once in your life Be real! Ice is civilization, and this is the podcast called Be Real. I am Noah Ballard, live from Brooklyn. I'm Chance Solenpfeiffer, taped from Portland, Oregon. What's up? Not too much, man. I'm excited to uh, talk about today's trio of movies with you. Um, Ice Civilization, of course, a quote from The Mosquito Coast. And we're talking about literally... I don't know if that's out of course. Do you think like a... a <laughs> significant portion of the listenership was like is that the mosquito coast i think i'm of course <laughs> because i want everyone to know we're talking about literal ice not like uh some sort of Hypothermia. domestic and in you know detention agency oh yeah these are tough times noah i don't know if you know they're the kind of times that make somebody want to live in the forest it, yeah it makes you want to rant about society and then go off and live in the jungle that's right and that's what we're doing today. Fathers, yeah. in some cases full families, but just fathers and children uh, living off the grid uh, in 1986's The Mosquito Coast, in 2016's Captain Fantastic, and in the brand new movie uh, Leave No Trace. We have a super cool guest coming up, uh, Deborah Granite. Yeah, who, Chance, what a find. Thank, yeah, thank you, who directed uh, Leave No Trace and also directed... Uh, Winter's Bone, which is just one of my favorite movies of the decade. Maybe the best noir of the decade. I was trying to find the right superlative for it. I love that movie. Um, Winter's Bone's great. The book's good, too. She is... Uh, but it on- launched Jennifer Lawrence's career. So, Deborah Granick's on the show. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about Leave No Trace, then we're going to talk to her about Leave No Trace. Uh, and then we'll get into these other movies. Can we, can we start with uh, this movie that was made and set in and around Portland? Yeah, I thought of you a lot while I was watching it. I was like, does, is this stuff that Chance sees? Like, if he were to suddenly become homeless, is this the park that he'd go to? I've been in that park. Well, I mean, one, it's based on a true story. One could definitely do what they did there. It's like the park, if you've ever, you remember looking out my balcony? It's like the giant park that, you know, buttresses the entire city on the far side. It's acres and acres and acres. Sure. Um, okay. So let's get into this movie. Leave No Trace just came out. It uh, stars Ben Foster as a veteran who is living in Forest Park with his, I think, 14-ish year old daughter, played by a, a New Zealand-born actress named Thomason McKenzie, uh, or the character is named Tom as well. And this is a movie that opens... I would say in kind of very tight on this existence they have because it's they have an insulated existence by Will's design and Will is the Ben Foster the father um you know they're reading encyclopedias they're playing chess they're making eggs uh using only the sun what else are they doing in that camp um dealing with dead mom right there's also that dead mom is a big thing in this category Mm mm-hmm or like mom who's only really a presence and not really a force. Right, right. Yeah. But yeah, this movie kind of throws you into it too in the way there's no exposition the way that there is with we'll get into with the other two movies. 
you're just like in the woods with them. And I think it's, uh, I mean, it reminds me a lot of, of course, Winter's Bone, but it also reminded me of this movie. You ever seen Wendy and Lucy with Michelle Williams? I have that written down, a Kelly Reichert movie. Yeah. It's a very sort of like, then they're in this place and then they're in this other place. And I've never read the book that's based on this book, My Abandonment from like the 2000s. Right. I, which I was unfamiliar with. I, I don't know it either. Um, but I, I love the Wendy and Lucy comparison because it, it it's sort of that when you're that alone in nature, but like, you know, kind of like what people in America do around nature. It's both like very liberating, but like, it's like, are they being watched? The camera makes a big impression on you all the time. Oh, and it's beautifully photographed. It's not a drill. He's got him. Stand up. You alone out here? My daughters are with me. Dad? Let's go. Can you tell me where you live? In the park? That's what I love about the movies like this is the setting itself becomes a character and like how forgiving the elements sort of are. And right. in this one, I think they are forgiving, but they are just at the same time. Mm. Like when a character makes a mistake, they like will be punished for it but it like won't kill them. It'll just sort of make them different. And that's when you sort of get into that mindset with this movie, I think it does some really interesting things. I mean, it's a wilderness movie, you know, like the edge or something, but the wilderness is so close to civilization and the civilization is almost like more terrifying than death. Yeah. So kind of what happens plot wise, and like you said, the the plot is not the most important thing, um, but the sort of inciting incident is that they get found by uh, somebody who jogs in Forest Park because there's all those people jogging in there. And then, uh, you know, Child Protective Services and like state agencies come in and they're like, you guys, first of all, you cannot live here. And second of all, this, you know, 14 year old girl needs to be in school like we have to put you guys back on the map and ben and the ben foster character's response to that vacillates between like resignation and like it's three in the morning get up we're leaving you realize pretty quickly that ben foster even though he's the title character and his name is like really quick on it he's not the protagonist of the movie no that would be thomas mckenzie yeah and it's not even them as a couple or a unit or whatever as the protagonist like i kind of thought it was them against the world a little bit more but as this movie goes on you're dealing with like a very in like like an insane person who like can't control their impulses and like has this daughter that he's like trying to do his best for but like this thing is like eating at him but like what is the thing like what is his quest like i understand it's this movie's brilliant on one level because like it allows you to analyze what PTSD in a way that shows like no hyperbolic violence and right. like someone waving a gun around at a party in some maudlin scene. Like there's no scenes of violence here mm-hmm. except for the 
every scene that Ben Foster is in is scary. The threat of violence is there. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of just, and he like tests her too. Yeah. Ben Foster's incredible. There's this incredible sequence in there when they like finally settle from everything that's happened in like being found and being separated for days and then like being put up in a sort of halfway home. Mm hmm. And they finally have this moment of rest and he looks at her and he goes, when the Rangers told me how they found us, they said that someone saw you. Like, why didn't you tell me? And it's such a threatening, like, is that, that's the first thing that you, like, not are you okay? Like, not some reassuring thing. It's this, like, sort of paranoid question of, like, did you do this on purpose? Like, yeah like, are you on my team kind of thing? And it's, and you know that because of his, like the, the deep seated sort of military trauma that he's dealt with, if he perceives you as an enemy, like you're dead. Yeah. I feel like he's not as like aggro or menacing as Harrison Ford, but he's always on the verge of like, what if he never loses his temper? And that's the scariest thing. If he starts to perceive her as an enemy, what then? And that sort of like that invisible line is frightening. Even though I think yes. this might be the most restrained I've ever seen Ben Foster in a movie. Well, I almost think that they cast Ben Foster like on purpose because you have seen him like lose his shit before and like have snot coming out of his face it's what or he's whatever. Great at. And this one, there's no snot. Right. But like the, the threat of snot is there. <laughs> Part of what you feel with this character, and it kind of reminds me of Casey Affleck in Manchester, is just like, if I allow myself to feel something, it is going to be bad. So I allow myself to feel nothing. And there's this moment where the guy's like, so this is a 450 question questionnaire. And there's this little eye twitch that he does up at the guy. Like, what the fuck? 450 questions. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And then like how he's going through it. And like the thing is that he needs more than three seconds to like decide on these things. And it's like just such a weird thing to ask someone. Right. Right. And, but yeah, but any, but it's, it's a, it's a fascinating performance, but like, I guess pivoting to a question to you chance is, do you fall under his spell? Cause I think all three of these movies question this idea of isn't he kind of charming though isn't like the way he lives like kind of i wish i could do that kind of thing and did you ever truly fall under his spell i think in its own way this movie makes the best argument for that kind of living because nobody makes an argument for it i think when i think about vigo and harrison i think about people who are over talking so much that you eventually realize that they're just like charlatans. Well, this is this movie's funny because it's the movie without a scene where they're like driving through society and the dad's just like, look at this. Right. There's going to be war on the streets. Yeah. Like these buildings are burning and no one knows. Right. Like society's coming to an end. And like talking about their like the way they buy and consume and look everything. How fat but I don't they think. Are. But I think what's interesting about this movie is that it's not this crazy sort of like man-child's Peter Panian kind of thing, Lost Boys. I think for Ben Foster's character, it's it's that this is a compulsion. Oh yeah, I don't think he has a he does. He's not doing it because it's romantic. He can't stop. 
he can't settle. He can't. He's got to keep moving. Which is why, I mean, no spoilers, but the it's kind of a spoiler, as much as you can spoil a movie like this. But the line at the end, I know you'd stay if you could, is probably yeah. like the realest line in any of these movies. But I, I feel like I, you're poking at something. Does does the sort of docu-realism of this movie, does its, does its quietness well, limit it for I you? I think I wanted a little bit more of him to be charming. Right. I wanted a little bit more sort of method to the madness. Like, it's... I never, like, crossed that line with him where it's like, why are you living this way? Like, what about it appeals to you? Because right. it seems like he's good at it, but it didn't seem like his political views dictate that, like, this is the most responsible way to be living the way the other f- da- bad dads do. Mm-hmm. He's just living this way because he can't deal with his PTSD or something. I don't know. But that's not, like, a big enough choice by the character to make it, I think, as watchable right. as the other two movies maybe are. I think that's totally fair. I mean, this is definitely the most understated, realistic, quietest, least colorful of the three. And in all those ways, I think it might be the... I think it's definitely the best crafted of the three. But is it watchable is always the eternal question for us. It's definitely like an upfront good like, this is a well-made movie, mm-hmm. but I think the subject matter and the docu-realism, right. like, put it in a very good-bad sort of category. I, I mean, this is a good-bad category to begin with. Right. Because going down the rabbit hole with someone, like, it could be it could be Swiss Family Robinson, it could be Wendy and Lucy. <laughs> you know, tough to say. Right. Um, so, real quick before we, can we explain the rating system? Absolutely. Let's cut to the old-timey music. There is no ambiguity on Be Real. All movies can and will be classified by one of our four ratings. Good, good, bad, bad, good, bad, and bad, good. The first good or bad refers to sheer artistry. The second is pure entertainment. Good, good is easy to explain. It's a movie that engages your inner art critic and brings you some form of happiness. For both reasons, you want to watch that movie again. Think Shawshank Redemption or Jurassic Park. <laughs> or more recently, Get Out and Lady Bird. That we know of yet. Good, good movies make Noah hyperbolically say, That was the best movie I've ever seen. Bad, bad is easy too. Movies that bring you neither stimulation nor joy. Basically, you just spent two hours wishing you could watch something else. Think of any musician turned actor who gave it a go in a Nicholas Sparks adaptation. I'll pass. Or many Nicolas Cage movie where he plays a wizard or a warrior. You are going to be a force for good and a very important sorcerer. Bad, bad movies make chance say, I hate so much that you made me watch that. Now, good, bad movies. Those we recognize as worthwhile in a cinematic sense, but don't necessarily enjoy. Think Schindler's List, Requiem for a Dream, or a Ward's Bait that hinges on a historical figure delivering an impassioned speech. I have given you my soul. Leave me my name! These kinds of movies make Noah say, But it was so boring. And then I remind him that at least Leo finally got his Oscar for crawling through all that mud. Conversely, bad good movies feed your thoughtless inner child. They're anything from flawed but charming Nancy Myers outings. I'm miraculously done being in love with you! To late career missteps like Al Pacino and Danny Collins. 
They're loud and silly, like Kurt Russell in Big Trouble in Little China or Stargate. It's all on the reflexes. Bad good movies make me want to watch Tombstone, especially when Noah says, But didn't the Mighty Ducks just give you that warm holiday feeling? Got all that? Now buckle up, because you're about to hear two friends who watch movies for very different reasons talk about their taste like it's God's own truth. I mean, this movie, like, just screams to have, like, a damning portrait of, like, you know, PTSD in Pacific Northwest America. Like, it just, it, it the, the sort of pull quotes that are, of course, on the poster for it write themselves sure. in a way, which makes it a little... This movie's, like, not meant to entertain you. It's meant to, like... And clearly from the interview, too, like, it, it wasn't... She wasn't Michael Bang, the, like, when could we have him fall off a cliff and break every bone in his body but be fine? You know, this movie's, like, very... It's saying something in the way that a documentary, I think, would say something. So I'm gonna... I'm gonna have to call it a good bad. I think that's totally fair. I... I think... That the spirit of this movie, though, is the most, in its own way, sort of like the warmest, most enlightened spirit of the three movies, though. Like, you mentioned that Ben Foster is not the protagonist, and the journey that we go on with Tom from precocious to wise, I think, is something I'd return to. Can I throw out something petty that I think makes, like, Winner's Bone a good good and this one a good bad? Is that that it's a genre movie? Well, probably that, but I just don't think that Tom is nearly as good of an actress as Jennifer Lawrence. I think okay. she renders like a pretty believable performance, but I think like I didn't warm to her in the same way that I did. I don't think this is like a star turn performance. Like I don't think you're gonna see her as your next it girl of Hollywood. Maybe you will. Maybe sure. I'll be proven wrong, but there's something about her. That's no one's really there to like, there's not enough charm on screen. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't yeah. fall yeah, yeah. for Tom the way I needed to. And I don't fall for will Ben Foster's character as much as I need to the way you sort of fall in love with the other families is goofy as they are but you're right though because we were texting about we'll get to captain fantastic in a second you were like these characters don't have any emotions and in this one they have all the emotions but they're so buried like they just create these little ripples on their skin this movie's too real for be real i mean it's too real for be real (laughs) i think it's really good though i think it's i think it's a good good it's a great movie let's talk now to uh can I set the scene for Deborah Granick? Is that like please. useful when you talk to some? So, I was trying to envision in my mind where you were. So please. Yeah. So I met up with her at the the Ace Hotel in downtown Portland. She's you know it's already like a, very cool. A pre- <laughs> I wanted to meet in Forest Park. She her you know the rep wouldn't bring her up there. Um, <laughs> you would no, set up a tent and everything. Right. <laughs> I was like, I will have sun fried eggs if she can be here. Um, no, but she's very, um, she's extremely talkative and very interested in ideas. Like, it for having, like, that 15, 20-minute interview slot, I think I had, like, four questions. Because she's the kind of person who just... Yeah, I noticed that you didn't ask a lot of questions. No, she just goes and goes. Um, and then you were, like, kind of surprised as to, like, 
where you ended up and like your next question that you'd written down. It was like, uh, yeah, uh, how are we going to get here? It was great. So <laughs> she also never broke eye contact the entire time. Oh, that's scary. I mean, except you can, except you can tell and you can tell from these movies that she like, she has a great soul, Deborah Granick. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's listen to her look into your soul for 20 minutes. Who taught you how to read? My dad teaches me. You're actually quite a bit ahead of where you need to be. I wake up rested and peaceful most mornings. True. My day-to-day life is full of things that keep me interested. True. I have nightmares or troubling dreams. Is your dad in the service? He was. Do you feel safe living with your dad? We didn't need to be rescued. Your dad needs to provide you shelter and a place to live. So many of your movies seem to end up in scenes of people playing music outdoors. Mm-hmm. I feel like they're or not outdoors. In Winter's Bone, it's inside. But in Stray Dog, which is real life, they there's like a music circle as well. Mm-hmm. How does that keep coming up for you? Well, I, one thing, if, if someone's going to make a film in a region, which I like to do, right. Right, one of the things I like to at least note is what, what music is being played in that region. And, and, you know, for the Pacific Northwest, it's very hard because this is a very rich mm-hmm. epicenter of very diverse music. And it's been on the map for a long time, you know, for, for movements that are started here for, for many different reasons. And, right. you know, uh, in one early version, this is kind of funny, in one early version of the script, it was a scene where Tom was in the city of Portland. It was, it was very different than what you see on screen now. But she had walked by this, um, I want to say this evening, this kind of co- concert mm-hmm. from that was being put on by the Girls Rock Camp. Oh. You know, and I, because I love the Girls Rock Camp and Rock and Roll Camp, you know. You know in exactly, a bunch of different yeah, cities, right? Yeah, yeah. In a bunch yeah. Of, but kind of founded and, and celebrated most prominently here in Portland. Right. right? And so that, that was the music I was thinking would be so relevant, right, for this, for, you know, and or not not the the only but one one of many for that character yeah, at that, that moment character. in her life yeah, exactly yeah. that she would just be so curious oh this is what other teen girls might mm-hmm. be doing you know that we ne- you know that we we lost that section of the script early on and then i wondered when she gets to this community what what do they do to sort of enrich their lives occasionally you know it's like they don't have a lot of excess money but the fact is you don't need it's, it's you know a campfire or a a guitar can be brought out what mm-hmm. i say is you don't have to have financial resources right. to in- attempt to sprinkle life with good things breaking bread together and you know having a song or two so a folk singer from a very revered and, and loved singer from the pacific northwest michael hurley that is michael hurley oh i didn't know that okay. yes mississippi records mm-hmm. here in portland hooked us up with hurley and he consented and then the other musician who's also very loved and has a very widespread following is marisa anderson mm. she's the woman on the guitar okay we, She's not, her style of playing is not showcased here. She actually has a very robust and intense way of playing yeah. her guitar, which, um, yes, yeah, so the choice is, the choice to do this is because I noted that as modern as we get and as ones and zero as we get, <laughs> for some reason, maybe that's part of being sapien sapien, we appear to still respond to musical notes going through our ear canal, right. going into our brain and making us feel usually good. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, if I can throw that in, I, uh, you know, but it, it needs to be the, of the region. You know, that's, yeah. that's something that makes me very excited to expand a little bit of the perception of where we are, you know. 
So let me ask a question about uh, the cinema of, of not feeling good. I wanted to the sequence in the in the film where Tom and her dad are are hiking. Is it north through Washington? The sec the second right. so time. So first they headed south, and right. then he felt very uncomfortable in the bus, and right. he thought, okay. You know, it's not like being on the capital L lamb, but he kind of said, let me, let's yeah. reverse our direction, yeah. you know? And so he decided in a very mercurial way, in a very abrupt way, get off one bus and hitch north. Yeah. And the temperature is really like rapidly dropping. And it's a very like upsetting sequence. And it reminded me of the, almost of the, the scene in Winter's Bone in the, in the livestock pen where there's nothing like graphically horrifying happen, but it's just so run through with fear. Mm. Um, how do you prepare to like shoot a scene like that where you, you maybe you're not showing something grotesque or scary, but like it has to be frightening? I am so trying to cultivate that because I'm trying to see if there's an alternative way to let us understand that things can threaten us very much so. Yeah. But it doesn't have to come in the form of of a firearm. Yeah. It doesn't have to come in the form of the of the threat of physical violence, a knife to the neck, yeah. uh, poison in someone's drink, what have you, you know. Um and I think it is probably getting in touch with the fact that there's fragility, right? That, you know, we, hypothermia, you don't have to be on Everest. It was interesting to hear this from outdoors people in the Pacific Northwest, that one of the most problematic things is once a person is wet, once their clothing is wet, it's actually very difficult to restore heat. It's very, it's very difficult to recalibrate the body to be able to insulate itself. Okay. And the more I heard from outdoor survival experts you know what becomes imperative it's time sensitive there must be this insulation that's why they're stuffing the ferns into their clothing mm. and that the the key urgent goal is to trap body heat so that means layers of boughs and branches debris anything that you can do to create this yeah insulating wall so that as much of your heat is retained throughout the duration until you can get up and ambulate again, you know? Right, which is what they do that and, night. Yes, yeah. yeah. So, how, I mean, how do you create that feeling as a as a director beyond just portraying the circumstance? I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of, a lot of editing in that sequence, I think, right? Yes. It yes. might be like, I don't, I don't know how many cuts or little different snippets, but yeah, how do you create there are, it? There is, there are a lot that, because that scene had to also be done in a lot of stages, so that is mm -hmm. a very, we had to really do a lot. And we also had to show time progression. You know, it had to get darker. It yep. had to get colder. Uh, she had to become more, in, like, I want to say, uh, fatigued by the, mm -hmm. uh, the stiffness of her body and then the loss of body yeah. heat. Um, so the way that I think as a group we approach that the DP has his imperative, you know, he's like loss of light, ensuing you know, blue tones and how to color that. And, and mm -hmm. Ben had read a lot about hypothermia and had been informed in great detail by uh, the survival, outdoor survival instructor. Tom also was privy to that, you know, she, Nicola Pellian was telling them, you know, blow by blow what would happen. And then Ben definitely, he, I remember he went on the internet and he was looking at a lot of accounts and trying to understand the physiology. Yeah, wow. You know, if he was going to be her protector... Uh, that night, he had to know like what literally what to prioritize, right? And he took it upon himself to really understand that. So it's a group effort, I mm -hmm. want to say. Yeah, like, I've just named four key players that sure. are helping to create that, and, yeah. and I'm just the coordinator that night, you know? Yeah. I want to ask you about the performance from uh, Tom McKenzie, who I mean, at least for my money, it seems like one of the hardest things to pull off as an actor of any age is that sort of like a realization that kind of lasts the whole movie. Mm. Um, and she pulls it off so brilliantly. How do you, how do you 
pace that out. Somebody learning something about themselves and the world and the most important and like only per, only person in their life. Um, I mean, that's like the whole character arc. How do you develop that and divvy that up? Well, in this story, something that was very helpful to the divvying of, of that up is that it is told in these very discrete chapters and the locations very much dictate that, which on the production level means that we shot in order. Okay. Right? Because, yeah. you know, we wouldn't shoot something in the farm, go away and come back. That's not how the story is written. So uh-huh. this is the book is my abandonment, right? The book right? is my okay. abandonment. Absolutely. No. And, and the book, we, we follow the, those up until the end. We follow those sections of the book very closely. Mm-hmm. So that's helping with it's, that's helping with divvying up her art. She's sure. learning something very discreet and different. Her first exposure to sort of the outside world, other teens, for example, in Clackamas, you know, like teens yeah. that are that are um, involved in 4-H or what have you. She's observing. She's going to a, uh, a church at that point. She's seeing, sort of seeing, ah, oh, there's this, you know, she's being an anthropologist that day. Right. There's this thing yeah. called devotional dance, and these women are practicing it right mm-hmm. here in front of me. Um, she's curious about, you know, why people do what they do. You know, the idea that, you know, you uh, one of the customs in church is to turn around and, and shake the hand of a stranger or meet someone, greet someone. Right. Um, so she's absorbing these things, and that's part of her arc there. Part of her arc at the cabin is to is to experience a form of, uh, you know, kind of abject fear because he's not returning. She's not. She doesn't know what what to do next. I mean, at all. And it's the fear of the vacuum, almost right. Mm-hmm. Just, that house becomes so creaky and quiet. Her aloneness becomes amplified. So she's going through another set of kind of contemplation, consternation, activating to help her father. She has to put down some of the things that he's told her about possibly what strangers might mean mm-hmm. and just take a bold step to say, like, I'm going to present myself and I'm going to ask bluntly and directly and urgently for help. I wanted to ask about one of the uh, local resources that I, I had heard about. Um, I, I can't remember where I read it, but was there? A, there was a gentleman who spent several years in in washington park who had yes. the the solar egg cooker yeah how did you run across this man what what did you talk to him about yeah he was at the screening last night actually. oh great ben. yeah ben he um we met him through a woman um you can get her name like fact check it okay because uh, it's a really interesting program she runs a mobile library for unhoused people mm. in Portland. She's done it for many, many years. And Ben became her assistant when he was no longer living in the park. And then I believe that he was um, assisted in finding housing. That's great. I, I don't know how we came into contact with her, but she was very helpful to us. And then she thought Ben would be an, an interesting or important informer, informant, and he was. And he did, he showed us some places very specifically. and. And he said that actually sort of his method for trying to function and, and keep himself going was to like learn new things and that like sort of the soul, you know, cooking his eggs and kind of actually, I think maybe almost increasing his nutrition that way mm-hmm. had been sort of a ladder in the, in the last phase of living outdoors. He had cultivated that. And yeah. I think he was, he was basically showing us, this is where I would do this. This is where I do this. And this is where I, you know, did this, you know, there, that's yeah. amazing ingenuity. I mean, there's a, but there's a lot of that in this story in general. Yeah. Um, it really is, and, and the rangers were very. Uh, it was interesting to see them. Both of them had had like at least one other instance where someone they had been very amazed and kind of in awe of how someone had been living. Someone had bermed in a teepee, in a really steep and rugged part of Forest Park. We had seen that they had built a small teepee years ago, and the back wall of the teepee was 
the actual earth. So it's thermal, like there's some thermal ingenuity and, and there was even like some storage space bermed in. So it was very careful and the, and, and he, this individual, I believe was undetected for a very long time. Yeah. And then same thing that, um, in Clackamas, I mean, literally there's a guy like this legendary, I don't know they, I thought they called him like Indian Joe or something. And the Rangers had an affinity, you know, it, because it's like if someone's trying so hard to be undetected, it's almost like you want to let them be, you know? Sure, sure. You know, I always called it sort of like the sort of low-key yetis of, mm-hmm. and Bigfoots of the Pacific Northwest. I was wondering if that legend took off here because there really are souls, unhoused or non-conforming souls that live in the federal wildlands of the, of the like Olympic Peninsula, for example, veterans who've lived there at times, the bends of the world, you know, mm-hmm. the bend meaning the bend of, of, Por- of Portland. Right, not, right. Not, I'm not, not ben, Foster. ben Foster. Yeah. yeah. So it did, it did sort of, it sort of kind of like was touching on my heart. Yeah. This idea that, you know, what we call Bigfoot, uh, Could just a soulful individual who's trying really hard to live outside the norm. Yeah. Wow. That's a, that is a great thought. I feel like since the election there's been a lot of sort of like moralizing talk about people in cities um you know taking in the stories of people in middle america and people in in rural places um a lot of it i think maybe well-intentioned but some of it like with not a lot of how to that command um but your films seem to to fit that bill but the films themselves don't strike me as particularly moralizing at all so <laughs> no i i truly i truly yeah. mean that it's what makes them so um complex and wonderful to watch um but so what is your sort of um you know your best hope for what people you know walk away from leave no trace like what does it do for them emotionally psychologically mm. if at its best i mean at its best i think it is uh, and this was through research right here in Portland area, at its best, it reflects that when people can do something to assist another person, most likely they will. Yeah. You know, that um, people are not, not everyone derives pleasure from seeing a story in which sadism is being enacted or right. or in real life where, it, you know, not not everyone is, is sort of out to get one another. You know, I think that that's... Uh, kind of very important part of the community at the end was that uh, that we forget that's an American tradition as well. Absolutely. To allow eccentricities to live, to live and let live, you know, that's when we're, I feel like we're at our best when we allow for, literally, this sounds hokey, but I, I want to almost say like lifestyle diversity, right? Definitely. You know, be, beyond race and class and, and ethnicity, giving some space, if, if people want to live with less, if they, if they would like to pull out from um, the digital network, they, that they should be, you know, there should be some space to do that. You know, I think I'm very concerned about when people are priced out of places, where do they go? And that's, that doesn't have a color, or meaning a red or a blue. That doesn't have a state. That's all states. That's everywhere. That's every zip code. And so this film actually started to be a real headbanger for me in the writing and the research. Like, mm. where do people go when they're priced out? Yeah. That, that young man, Isaiah, you know, with aspirations to construct a tiny house. You know, maybe here in the Pacific Northwest, tiny house feels like a cliche and you guys are just all, you're done with it. You know, you're over. It's like, oh God, don't, don't talk to me about another tiny house, you know. But what I want to ask is, let's just say that's a viable way to survive. 
because you don't need a trophy salary. You don't need to earn bigger, more money. You don't need to, you know, that you're deciding. It's like a, almost like a vow of frugality, right? You're deciding to live humbly, but where do you put it? The next headline after I got excited about researching tiny homes, the next headline I came across was many people seek tiny homes, yet there's nowhere to put them. Yeah. 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 Uh, A a complex note to end on, but Deborah, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it. Oh, well, thank you. Good to talk to you. Good to talk to you. Yeah. It's not a crime to be unhoused, but it's illegal to live on public land. We have found an option. Are we gonna be okay here? You can still think our own thoughts. Keep pedaling. Look where you want to go. School is about social skills, not just intellectual ones. I think it might be easier on us if we try to adapt. We're wearing their clothes, we're in their house, we're eating their food, we're doing their work. We have adapted. Well, hell yeah. Another uh, Be Real director interview in the books. Um... More coming your way soon. That's true. Take you that got to a mean great what one. you will. Um, I forgot, this is a good movie. Uh, for God's sake, though, watch Winter's Bone. That, that's an incredible movie. Yeah. Let's move on. You want to go to the Mosquito Coast? I feel like this is like a, a throwback. Harrison Ford, all of the women of a certain age have seen this movie. He's hot shit in this movie. He's very good looking, and that's part of the way he like gets away with his bad behavior. So this was the only movie for like decades of Harrison Ford's career that didn't make its money back, though. <laughs> well, it's because so, it's long and it doesn't make much sense. <laughs> <laughs> Directed by Peter Weir, who's uh, made a bunch of great movies. Kind of underrated Peter Weir. Uh, oh, yeah. True. And this is definitely like a Peter Weir movie. Oh, yeah. There's like... It's an adventure, but it's very serious. Right. It's a very serious adventure. Truman Show, Master and Commander, Dead Poet Society, Witness with Harrison Ford just one year before was a huge hit. Yeah. Um, so, and then it's based on a novel by Paul Thoreau, uh, Justin Thoreau's uncle, for those who are curious. And um, writer in his own right. <laughs> I, do, I guess he wrote the novel for this. With Celebrity a screenplay, in his own, A screenplay by Paul With Schrader. Paul Schrader. That's yes. amazing. I didn't know that when I put this movie on. I was like, Paul Schrader, Paul Schrader, like the canyons. You can kind of see it and you kind of can't. You can kind of see in some of the speeches and in some of just the clearly what he stole from the actual source material yeah paul schrader is a very lazy screenwriter he likes to write rambling monologues and he likes to steal narration from whatever he's adapting Mm. so i think that you can sniff it a little bit once you know it's a good wink i kind of can't believe that you just called the writer of taxi driver and raging bull lazy oh i think like this is later this is 80s paul schrader yeah i'm not talking about 70s he cashed in. So yeah, this is one of these movies where a charismatic dad leads his family somewhere insane. They're, so it opens and they're living where? Where? Where is? Where does it sure. open? Small town America. <laughs> Small town America, like not that far from water. And the oldest son of the four kids. I think they're kids. on the East Coast somewhere. Yes. The oldest son of the four kids, played by River Phoenix, Charlie. Uh, narrates the show and it's very clear from the beginning that 
he sets the tone for how the movie wants you to relate to the Ford character, whose name is, of course, Allie Fox. Um, another unearned, of course, from Chance Tonight about this movie. Um, but he loves his dad. His dad is an inventor. He thinks his dad is a genius. Uh, his dad has uh, been hired to like repair the cooling system on this asparagus farm, but has instead deve- invented like this magic machine that creates ice uh, with no electricity. And the farmer's like, well, that's all fine and good, Allie, but my asparagus is going bad by the bundle. And Harrison <laughs> Ford's like, don't you understand? America's rotting. Um, and then pretty- Did you recognize that guy from Taking of Pelham 123? He's <laughs> the-, the guy that Walter Matthau throws out of his chair. Oh, no. I d- can't say I did. And then very quickly, Allie Fox and his wife, uh, Helen Mirren. Oh, you, yeah. Babe Helen Mirren. Oh, yeah. I, Young Helen This Mirren. is like pre-Dame Helen Mirren and like very much in the prime of Babe Helen Mirren. <laughs> Do you watch that show, Superstore? No. Is it good? It's like the sitcom about the people who work at that Walmart equivalent and like one of the creepy guys like has a podcast called Celebrities I'd Have Sex With. Oh, yeah. And he like ends one of them with and Helen Mirren. <laughs> but I agree with him in this case. Yeah, she's beautiful. Yeah, looking pretty. I mean, she's not as hot as Harrison Ford, but... Oh, my God. Once Harrison Ford comes on screen. You notice how the movie makes the great choice of blonding out his hair the more and more he's exposed by the sun? Mm. Jesus. Um, And that Hawaiian shirt. You gotta love that, because he's such a peacock. I love a movie that makes me want to be both his son and his wife. Um, So... (laughs) Because you kind of, like, have a man crush on Harrison Ford. Yes. Oh, yeah. I always have. I mean, he... Remi- uh, yeah, you, you you go nuts for him. Yeah, I mean, well, now it's really creepy. But, like, he reminds me of my dad. And my dad reminds me of Harrison Ford. Even though my dad does not like Harrison Ford. But, like, if Maybe because he da- sees him as a threat. Maybe. If, you know, for he your does affection. The pointing thing and the sort of, like, eye roll thing and just, like, you know, being he's, a... He's a man's man. Being a big guy with big shoulders. It's, yeah... Yeah, with ideas. <laughs> right. Um, so, yeah, very quickly, the the ideology that Ali expresses. So what does he believe about America? Is it coherent at all? No. It's like somewhere between make America great again and like Bernie. Yeah. It's like, let's all band together in like a very nationalist way to build like this utopia where everyone's taken care of in a socialist society. God, you're right. It's completely incoherent. Yeah. And I'll be the great man at the head of our completely equal society. It's ultimately the ideology if you make a man like a king. You know, he will treat his subjects fairly. Yeah. And he has that line where he shouts it like, am I not fair? Am I not a just man? But yeah, he's despises the greed of people, despises globalization, um, despises capitalist excess, um, and pretty quickly. But he, he likes building like grand, sort of phallic symbols to his <laughs> to his greatness. It's the magic machine. So pretty quickly, he moves this family of his uh, down to Central America to, I think as Noah would say, the titular Mosquito Coast. 
Oh, um, yeah. It has some other dumb name, but... Yeah, yeah they, like... They, there's, like, a waypoint in Belize that they stop at, but by the time they get to the actual completely uncharted village they build, I don't know where they are. Yeah, unclear. And I don't think the movie cares either. He just calls it, in the jungle, they do this. Oh, that's the jungle. Like, all right. All right, Alan yeah. Fox. But then the movie makes an interesting shift once they end up in the jungle and, like, turns into Swiss Family Robinson. It's, like, pretty neat. Definitely. Because you see I what like, a I like all the gadgets. inventor he is. Yeah. The gadgets are great. When he's just building something and people are like, I, I think I could follow this guy. Well, like, not only is he a good... In, or inventor of like things he's also a good like henry ford sort of how the thing gets made right like he like color coats the construction site so everyone knows what they're like responsible for without knowing any english which is like pretty ingenious but like how would one make that ikea arrangement work with people i mean it would take an infinite amount of time we eat when we're not hungry we buy what we don't need and throw away everything that's useful. There are people in New York that live on pet food and would kill you for a quarter. You don't dare take a walk for fear somebody will stick a knife in your ribs. Why sell a man what he wants? Sell him what he doesn't need. Pretend he's got eight legs and two stomachs and money to burn. It's wrong. Some said he was a genius. Honey, he's gonna love it. I'm gonna knock his socks off. I'm gonna straighten his hair. But Dad, what is it? It's perfection. That's what it is. Some thought it was madness nobody ever thinks of leaving this country i do i think about it every day tell him he is a dangerous man and one of these days he's going to get you all killed he wanted to change the world what is it you want elbow room come on and when the world wouldn't listen goodbye america have a nice day he found a world that would so then i think the only other thing we should get out of the way before we start talking in full is that on the way down uh on this barge to panama they uh encounter this missionary uh the reverend oh, yeah. spellgood um <laughs> played by andre gregory who's just so slimy and unlikable and like right. the problem is that like harrison ford's ideology is so all over the place but occasionally he'll hit on something where you're just like yeah that and you feel like that's what everyone in the movie is doing where all of a sudden he's just like Reverend, I know the Bible even better than you. You've misquoted Luke and Christianity's for sheep. And all of a sudden I'm like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but then like his actual relationship to faith and whether he's any better than a missionary is completely open to questioning. Well, can I make a wild assertion about all three of these movies? Bring it. Since we're talking about it. I think that they all sort of make the case that without a little bit of Jesus in your life, like you're fucked. <laughs> like without a little bit of they're all men who have lost their faith yeah i think you're right i mean they've all rejected conventional belief systems but like everyone needs some kind of like hope but that's also what they're missing person. yeah they're missing that like spiritual side where right. they think that this has purpose right. like there's even that scene where he's answering the true false questions going back to um leave no trace where it's like do you think that like the prophet's like we're like they what their plan was like is coming true and he his like he got tripped up on the word like profits like yeah. what you're talking about so it's it's very interesting and this one too like how they make the foil because the antagonist is both Harrison Ford but also the foil is his foil is the preacher right 
And so, and I mean, the narrator is of course River Phoenix, but I don't know that he's the protagonist of the film. I almost think that it's sort of, it's an antagonistic category because it's tough to say like who you're rooting for, like once the charm of it wears off. And I think in this one, it's almost as though you as the viewer are the protagonist of the film because you're like kind of excited about it at first. Like, let's go on an adventure. That's what a movie is supposed to do. And you get there and it shows you this like Disney fantasy of like what a white man going to the jungle is like, Mm -hmm. you know? And then, like, things start to fall apart and, like, the magic he's made is, like, used for evil. But, like, evil can't be controlled. And then all bets are off. Like we were talking about with Leave No Trace. Like, once you establish, like, how just are the elements around you? Like, how likely is someone to, like, get bitten by a snake or, like, something at random? Like, this movie is pretty, it's pretty fucked up. If I could just offer, like, just a quick, like, alternate theory. The other thing is... Paul Schrader and Paul Schrader doesn't really do protagonists he does deep dives on God's lonely men (laughs) antagonists yeah so there's that too yeah if this guy was living in New York in the 1970s he'd be plotting like the the assassination of the president or a senate candidate or something yeah someday a rain slash nuclear holocaust is gonna come right um okay so let's move on how's Harrison Ford this is a you've never seen him do this role nope You've seen him do the front half of this role, but you've never seen him do the back half. I don't know if I've ever seen him talk this much in a movie. Yeah, that's the thing, too. I was, uh, he has an incredible amount of lines. He delivers them well, I think. But I think that the movie, like, if I can make a leap here, I don't think it quite, like, sticks the landing with him. Right. Because it makes it sort of comically, like, we, like, comically sort of, huh, at the end. It's almost like it's too O. Henry. Oh, sure. Definitely. Oh, yeah. I mean, I find that ending like a a little bit beautiful, but only because of Peter Weir, not because I feel for the character. Right. And that may be the source material or that may be Paul Schrader just like, you know, doing his thing. It's kind of interesting because it's a little bit like, what if the sort of like bad guy who you love it or like not like not an antagonist, but like. A guy who's like thumbing his nose at the rules and is kind of like right on the edge and tosses the revolver into his suitcase and smooches Princess Leia. Like what if the dial was turned just a little bit more to the point where like that cult of personality was like, no, I actually am like reflexively self-aggrandizing to the point where you could never win an argument with me. It's disturbing. That's what I think is it makes it so interesting because he is a Harrison Ford character without a purpose. Yeah. And so he has to find his own purpose and the movie won't give him one. So he decides that he's going to go on an adventure the way Indiana Jones would and like make his own little world that we're going to watch. It's almost like an anti Harrison Ford movie starring Harrison Ford. Yeah. Which, wow. which I think is one of its more brilliant qualities, but as like a watchable movie about some white people living in the jungle making not white people's lives a whole lot easier the way a savior would. Uh, I think this is like a tough movie. Yeah, it is. Um, I think I understand that like he gets what he deserves in the end, but just like the conceit of this movie is like pretty questionable. Yeah. There's interesting reads in there. Like uh, if you think about, you know, in high school, they teach you the three G's of colonialism, gold, glory, and God. 
And really, like, in this case, Glory thinks it's Glory. so much better than God, but really, like, is there any but fucking difference in the end? it's still a story of colonialism. End? Yeah, absolutely. There's no difference in the end. It's a, the, he wants them to worship. The, the, the strange turn of this movie where you just, like, you realize you're walking off the map because Geronimo wasn't off the map. It's the next thing that's off the map is where he just wants to show the, the Indians ice he wants to feel what it is to be worshipped, see the amazement in their eyes. Like, what's more yeah. 19th century English explorer than that? Yeah, he's a DeSoto of sorts. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> but then, and then the movie, like, really, really goes off the rails. Like, with the houseboat and, like, the burning down the town. <laughs> right. It's... They're burning down the church and everything. Um yeah, I so I don't know. think it would need to invest more in River Phoenix or Helen Mirren quite a lot more for this to be a more rounded, good, good movie. It's a shame this movie was made when it was and not more recently, so Paul Bettany like, couldn't be in it in some capacity as like, a well-wisher from society. Oh, yeah. I think Paul Bettany might be the missionary. Oh, he would definitely be the missionary in the remake, also directed by Peter Weir. Okay, so what are we rating The Mosquito Coast? The Mosquito Coast, I feel like, is pretty quintessential. Peter Weir, Master and Commander, good, bad. I'm right there with you. This is a movie that, like, my father would love. It's got a certain chariots of fireness to it. Absolutely. There are, there are <laughs> lots of interesting reads on the character. Oh, yeah, and the characters are really interesting and much like, in a way more like 19th century, 20th, early 20th century novel sort of way. It's right. like far more interested in emotions than like the goofy American independent film plot as our third movie is. (laughs) Can I give a quick shout out though? I mean, there's always a shot or two in a Peter Weir movie where you're like, shit, that's great. Oh, it's beautifully photographed. This is a very beautifully photographed genre. Where Reverend Spellgood is walking up the dock and they put the camera right at Harrison Ford's hip where he's got a hammer slung through his belt loop. Yep. And it's like the gunfighters of ideology mm-hmm. are about to meet at noon. And it's like, oh, God, that's a great shot. Yeah. It, it has like those fun Wild West moments yeah. to it that I really appreciate. I think the other shout out, too, is that like, didn't you expect a famous actor like Jason Alexander to like come back? <laughs> <laughs> Jason Alexander has two lines in this movie as uh, clerk at <laughs> a Japanese-owned hardware store. Right, and fuck him for that, right? Yeah, you're just you're you're just working. I think it's like I don't know. It might be more nuanced than that. It might be like he hates the systems that like go for the bottom dollar, but like he's easily casually racist amid that kind of murky hatred. But, like, I think it's an interesting portrait of, like, a pretty unlike... But the, the movie doesn't posit that he's good. No. No. But that's also, like, a hard movie to watch for, like, as long as this movie is. Good, right. bad. And with that adventure patina. Um, okay. Captain Fantastic? Oh, Captain Just Fine. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so Captain Fantastic came out uh, two years ago. Viggo Mortensen got an Oscar nomination for uh, playing the patriarchal role of, of uh, what is his name? Ben. Must have been a, or, must have been a shallow year for the. Yeah, who best was it? It was actor. it was Denzel Fences, Affleck for Manchester by the Sea, uh, Ryan Gosling for La La Land. This is all off the top of my head. And what's the fourth? What's the fifth one? 
That girl from Whale Rider. No, afraid not. I feel like oh, was Ryan it Gosling. Ridge? It was Andrew Garfield for Hacksaw Ridge. That's stupid. No wonder I couldn't remember it. If this movie had been made circa United States of Leland, that Ryan Gosling definitely would have been the eldest son. And Viggo Mortensen, who was just 50 at the time, probably would have reprised the same role. I think probably that's right. Um, Viggo Mortensen is 60 years old, yet he's still without a shirt in most of this movie. What do you make of that? I think he's got a great head of hair and he never eats a processed item of food. Do you, well, that's the thing about this movie. Something about it makes me think that this is just the way Viggo Mortensen lives. I think, yeah. I, I mean, obviously no, but like, kinda. He cel- probably celebrates Noam Chomsky Day. Do you know that on his Wikipedia page, he identifies himself as not only an actor, producer, and writer, but a painter and a poet? I mean, absolutely. He definitely lives on a bus named Steve with his, like, 12 fucking kids and his wife that could probably use to be on uh, antidepressants. Yeah. Um, She could stand it. So, yeah, he's raising his kids to be intellectually and physically, like, elite, um, which is sort of conspicuous. And, yeah, their mom... Or their mom passes away in the first few minutes of the movie. They go to town and get the phone call. She's been in a hospital in Texas and she took her life. And he has to go back to these kids who he's making do like 10,000 burpees a day and then like reading like Percy Shelley and uh, Nabokov and tells them that their, their mom is dead. And they all, of course, they all live in complete seclusion in, I think, Washington. Um, yes, yeah, so this movie decides after a somewhat Wes Andersonian set up because this movie is easily it's like royal they some executive pitched this as royal tenenbaums but on the bus from little miss sunshine and everybody was like okay here's four million (laughs) dollars to uh what's to make a movie that should uh, probably be on netflix only yeah matt ross who you pointed texted me last night yeah gavin belson it's, it's gavin belson from um silicon valley and uh Lewis Carruthers from American Psycho. Mm-hmm. So that's an unlikely fit. And then, of course, what, what's, is. what sets the plot into motion is that they they are like, we have to go collect mom's body from her sort of like middle American, like conservative parents. Well, uh, they're like wealthy New Mexico money. Right. <laughs> they live in Corrales where the rich people live. <laughs> That's right. So they, they want to go to the funeral to basically make sure that she gets cremated to honor all of her wishes and to and to piss off uh, Frank Langella and Anne Dowd, the parents of the, de- the deceased mother. Um, yeah, so it turns into a road trip movie on a bus named Steve, like you said. What we created here may be unique in all of human existence. All the way to top. We created a paradise. Ah! Ah! What we're doing out here is so incredible. Our kids are amazing. Mom needs to be in the hospital right now. How's she doing? We're family. This is your fault. Wesley had a disease. Wherever you are, stay there. You show up, I will have you arrested. We can't go to mommy's funeral. We have to do what we're told. We want to see mom. Grandpa can't impress us. 
they stop and see Steve Zahn and um, Catherine Hahn. What's her name? Catherine Hahn. Oh, the acting law firm of Zahn and Hahn. That's funny. Um, <laughs> and yeah, and they got all these kids, and the kids are super smart in a polemic sort of way. Yes. Um, well, that's the thing. This movie suffers from being both a very shameless sort of um, the what is it? The principles of caregiving, the fundamentals of caregiving. Yeah, it's yeah. just like a shameless indie movie premise, but with such like, it's such a political polemic for like, you know, my kids are smart too. In like a weird way. And like, yeah, like homeschool kids are, or they're, they're smarter than public school kids who don't even know what the bill of rights is. Yeah. You know, and these kids are so like, like the Weasleys or something. Right. They're so like fat and, and there's all these shots of like, get off your video game iPod, you know, like, it's like, what are you, you know, I want a golden goose now, mommy. I think, yes, you're, you're very close to pinning the tail on one of the big problems with this issue is over this movie is that for as intellectually rigorous as it, you know, wants to be, they never encounter anyone who let's say has been on Twitter before. They only encounter, you know, kids who, like you said, fell in the chocolate swamp on the Willy Wonka tour. <laughs> uh, a guy who's literally most famous for playing Richard Nixon. Um, and then, like, <laughs> just bumpkins. And there's just nobody. The, the problem is this movie has nobody on either an ideological level or an emotional level to really just, like, interrogate these people in a way that's, frankly, pretty easy. Right. The, yeah. Everyone's so stupid and conservative that they run into. And and this movie's also, like, not so subtly, like, very sort of anti-Christian, too. For sure. Because, like, I mean, the climat- one of the climactic scenes is they, like, crash the mom's funeral. Right. It's just such a fucking, like, indie movie staple. Right. Of, like, let's take... We think weddings are done. What about funerals? Can we have them all go to the funerals? You know... Yeah, and let, let's put Vigo in like a red suit because like a guy like this would only own like a an ill-fitting red suit. It's just too clever. Right. This movie's like way like more clever than it is smart. I could not believe I did not think about this the first time I saw this movie. There is a giant gaping hole in the movie, which is for having a father who is co- drilling into his kids to resist authoritarian influence. None of them think to resist his utterly authoritarian influence on them. Right. I mean, other than uh, Relian, who's the kid <laughs> from It who gets like kicked down the well. But you know he's evil because he's a racist in that other movie. But even then, it's not, nobody's just like, uh, practice what you preach, dad. Like, that's so obvious. Right. It's very obvious. The way that it happens in, like, Mosquito Coast. And this movie should have seen Mosquito Coast. Right. Because it essentially is Mosquito Coast. Definitely. But tweer. It's definitely, it's, it's, it's a surprise that Zoe Deschanel isn't, like, an older sister in this movie. Yes. Can I say something that I think this movie, like, it loses the most points for? Yeah. If you're going to open your film with you eating a, like a just lived deer heart raw, yeah. 
you better be more interesting than Captain fucking Fantastic ends up being. <laughs> like, it's such a weird, and it, like, never comes up again that they, like, sort of worship animals. Right. And, like, that, like, the heart was, like, a, a coming-of-age thing. I mean, it's it's sort of the more fun version of the, that's the famous scene from Temple of Doom. Mm-hmm. I think this movie is like decently well regarded. If you like like the classic like Sundance aesthetic of like ah uh, and like people running through a field and it's like sun dappled and shit. Um, and the movie also it does a nice job of like it has set pieces uh, in a way that you're not expecting. Like the grocery store heist is pretty fun. The basically the Bill of Rights recitation by like the six year old in front of the like dumb jail haired like Missouri kids is like a set piece of its own kind. Like it's it has these entertaining moments, but like the minute you start to pick at it, it's like what is this appropriate at all? Like what is up with this white face in the first thirty seconds, Sarah Well that's what I was gonna get into. Sarah, the woman with whom I'm in a monogamous long term relationship said, What are these white people up to? In the first 30 <laughs> seconds of the movie. And it's like, yeah. Right. That is the question, isn't it? The movie it? is so unapologetically white. Right. Like, if you look at the IMDb page, the only people that show up before hitting C full cast are all, like, white actors. Yes. And it's like, it's a movie that's so shamelessly, I'm forgive me for this chance, it's so shamelessly Portland. You know, it's like, this is how people in Portland live, like, you know, by their own rules and they're wearing vintage clothing and like, <laughs> they're all white, <laughs> sure, <laughs> you sure. know, kind of thing. And, but the movie doesn't even show any diversity in any context, which is like sort of unforgivable, I think. Yeah. You know, that at least like make the choice of making the parents like some different, like not just more white. Right. You know, it, it's it, do something like right. have one of the kids be adopted for God's sake. Like how, like what is this movie? Like what is this movie's politics and how sort of, how dumb does it realize that it is? I don't think this movie thinks that Vigo is a bad dad. And he is, he is a horrible father. Right. He w- won't let his kids like, pursue their own dreams except like the dreams they have can pursue have to be so outrageous as to be detrimental to their mental health. Right. Oh, I, I, I picked out Nambia from like spinning a globe around and that's why I'm at this airport now. Like that's such a weird epilogue for the eldest son who like confronts his dad about wanting to do his own thing and like outing him as a despot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's just a movie that has too much about itself that it doesn't realize. And if I could defend Portland for a second, I feel like this movie is the, is like people who look up Portland on Instagram is like who this movie is targeted at. It's a movie about Portland from someone who's never been to Portland. Yeah. Like leave no traces set in Portland and like there are homeless encampments and like people really struggling with like the opioid crisis and shit. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. That's no, I'm not saying that. I knew what you were saying, but yeah, these movies are all very white. Noah white dads Noah, making what? white dad choices. <laughs> Noah will not let me call this episode So My White Dad Hates Society. I don't know. This movie really bothered me for some reason. I know that it's well regarded. It's got a good IMDb score. Like people liked it. But I think this movie is bad, bad. I'm right. I'm totally with you. And it made me upset that the first time I was like, oh, yeah, that was cute. Because the second time I was like, what? Have you seen this movie twice? This is the second time for me. Oh, I, this is the first time I've encountered it. And I like, I was unimpressed. 
Oh yeah, it's not. There are some entertaining things about it, but it is, you know, ultimately like sad and uncomfortable. And then there's just all the things where it's not self-aware. It's puzzle pieces from like other better movies. It's the bus from Little Miss Sunshine and like the beard and hair trimming from Royal Tenenbaums. And it's all these sequences you've seen in like better movies like where the kids like hide in the bus and like pop out and they're suddenly there. It's just so easy. Like a braver movie would have had the kids stay with the grandparents, not to spoil it. And then have him like go through what it's like to not have the kids and be really sad and like maybe be a better father. But instead he's so brainwashed all of them because of course he does. Cause his insane wife and him, who's also suffering from some sort of mental illness. That's like the kind of funny thing about this movie. It's like your mother had what they call mental illness. And it's like, <laughs> you have what they call <laughs> mental illness. Exactly. The, honestly, You're suffering from a God complex, just the way Harrison Ford is. Also, there's a whole like kind of what has to be a creepy prequel movie about how this like radical man married a woman 20 years younger than him. Like, what is that Mansonian movie? Right. He's a cult leader. Yes. He's a cult. This is a twee movie about a cult. That won't admit it. And they all happen to be related. And can I say something weird? Yeah. Why does this movie have those like two scenes where the two men are naked? Like that makes this movie like very sexual for me. And it's like, it's, it's a weird one. Yeah. I think Carruthers made a weird sexual <laughs> incesty cult movie and like put a twee score behind it and marketed it as like the Figo Mortensen vehicle for this holiday season. Okay. Two questions to end the show. Which dad do you want? If you had to have one of these bad dads and second, do any of them convince you to want to adopt any part of this ethos, this way of living, this lifestyle? Oof. You go first, buddy. I joke- you said Harrison Ford on text. Yeah, I was, I, that was a dumb call. Harrison Ford is by far the worst of the fathers. Because if you pick Ben Foster, like I think that Tom will probably have the most normal life. Of all of them. Again, too real for be real. Ben Foster is just the dad you realize is your own dad who's got very serious problems of his own. And yeah. And that that he can't do anything about him. And he's it. Yeah. So, I mean, it's sad, but you got to take Ben Foster. I also think leave no trace again. It's like, there's something about that kind of like, we have what we need. And there's, there is a certain piece in that. Now, if you ask me to do something else, you're going to see how like inflexible and damaged I am. But there is a certain piece in having what you need. Right. Like, what I like about Leave No Traces compared to... There's never the point in that that there is in Captain Fantastic where it's like, these are my kids. Right. Like ben Foster never says the line, like, this is my daughter. Right. You know, like, how dare you take her away? He would love to, like, have her stay somewhere. You know, because he knows in his heart that it'll make her happy. Yeah. And that's why he doesn't put up any fight when, like, they ultimately separate I mean, at this point, if if this if these are one of your bad fathers, you the only choice you will have is to be like the writer of a very successful memoir. Yep. So I think that probably like the best one that like won't necessarily get you 
killed kills. Yeah, who writes the best book? I think it's Harrison Ford. The River Phoenix. Vigo is then the one that they write, like, the shitty follow-up memoir, just trying to cash in on the bad dad memoir craze Vigo's started by the Mosquito Coast. Vigo's the one where it's successful and you go on fresh air and Terry Gross is like, but isn't your dad kind of bad? And then you have to defend him <laughs> a whole bunch. Dad, like, I think he's more of a bad dad than a sad dad. And then you're like, my father was an interesting man, Terry, but, like, he loved us. And then later on in your hotel room, you're like, no, my dad was bad. He was a monster. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We are just about done here. Uh, Thank you again to Deborah Granick for coming on the show. A terrific filmmaker um, and a a good interview with all kinds of thoughts about tiny houses, I think would have taken us another hour to unpack. She was that kind of interview. Yeah, you were so disappointed that it was just like, well, on that note with the tiny houses, I'm going to go think about that for the rest of the day. My 17 minutes are up. Thanks for bringing up a really thought-provoking thing we can't talk about. Um, I want to live in a tiny house. Leave No Trace, but we're going to put it. Leave No Trace is in theaters now, and I think these other two are rentable, right? Yeah, and I'm sure Leave No Trace will be rentable imminently. I would believe that. I believe that's true. Um, as always, folks, berealpodcast.com to find all our episodes. In social media news, we gone and made an Instagram. Uh, if you're hearing this, you yeah. might know about it already, but we're all over it. Did I? Did you see my funny one from the Angelica Theater earlier? I did, with the water cup. <laughs> <laughs> my joke was that that little water cup they gave me left no trace. There you go. Because it was so small. Right. Um, so, yeah, follow us on there if you feel like uh, a movie. I actually participate, whereas on the, the Twitter, I don't. The Twitter is on me. That's why it's like unintelligible snark most of the time. The Instagram, that's where we're going to go viral because Noah's in I'm going to go. I'm going to do the videos. Right. So, yeah, that's going on. Uh, we have some exciting episodes coming up, folks. Uh, more fun guests. Uh, but until next time. Noah? Sir? I'll talk to you later. Yeah, take care.